to be here again. It's been a day or two since I was here last, so glad to see that you're all doing well. You can see that I have wounded myself. The, the story of this is I was playing football with my sons and tried to tackle my 10-year-old and snapped the end of my finger, which shows that I'm too old to be doing that, and you shouldn't play with your kids anyway. That's the, <laughs> that's the moral of that story. <clears throat> but I've had surgery now, and looks like that will be repaired. Let's, uh, let's take a moment and pray, and then let's jump into the text for today. Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for my friends who have come this morning and your friends who've come this morning. Pray that we will hear what you are saying to us and we will find your strength to respond in faith and in hope and in love to bring your work to bear in the world. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start in Philippians 3 and then come back to the gospel that Pastor Janice just read. <clears throat> What I, what I want to say this morning is not, it's not very polished, and it's not, probably not actually um, technically a sermon. I mean, if this were a homiletics class, I probably wouldn't get a passing grade. But I can't, I can't help but feel that these texts nudge us to take a responsibility seriously in the world. I think there's a, there are kinds of Christianity that emphasize, so emphasize our relationship to God, our personal, personal, individual relationship to God, that we sometimes forget our responsibility in the world to be God's people, and we, we don't know how to take that seriously enough. And so what I want to do this morning is, looking at this text from Paul and the text in the gospel, just reflect with you just, just a few minutes about what our responsibility is in the world and what it is that we should be doing and how we should be doing it. So Philippians 3, 17. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. So Paul is writing to the Philippians. This is one of those letters that ends multiple times, I mean, where Paul will conclude, he'll say, finally, and then it's not really finally. I'll probably do that in my sermon today several times, but know when I do it that I'm consciously imitating the Apostle Paul, like he told us to do. He said, imitate me. So I'm going to imitate him today. He's writing to them, and he's toward the end of one of the sections that he said is the conclusion. 
And he says, I want to remind you of the enemies of the cross of Christ that I've told you about often, and this time even with tears. I think it's absolutely essential that Christians come to terms with the fact that we have enemies. That there are those people living in the world whose way of life resists the work of God in the world. And that the work of, the God, the work of God in the world is the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice and humility and humiliation, the way of self-denial and patience, and in all of those ways that God in the cross is at work in the world, there are people, strong and weak, powerful and, and, and not powerful, wealthy and poor, there are people who are resisting that. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul reminds his congregation of it often. He doesn't want them to forget there are people whose lives resist the work of God in the world. But notice Paul says this in tears. And he says this in tears, first of all, because of the enemies of, of the cross. Because he loves God and he loves what God is doing in the world. He wants to see the cross triumph. He wants to see God's way done in the world. He, Paul is praying like we pray. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Which is just another way of saying, let the wisdom of the cross prevail. Let the wisdom of the cross have victory in the world. That's what Paul is praying for, like all of us are praying for. And he's weeping that it isn't happening. He's weeping because of the enemies of Christ. But he's also weeping for them. And this is, I think, a mark of Christian maturity. That it's almost as if you can mark off stages of Christian maturation this way. That in the earliest stage, you don't realize that you have enemies at all. You're naive. You don't recognize that the world is broken in these ways. And then you can come to recognize that you have enemies and you assume that everyone who's your enemy is God's enemy too. If somebody is opposing you, you just assume they must hate God. Right? When I was teaching at ORU years ago, we had a, a kind of kerfuffle with a couple of the students and they had gotten into a shouting match in the middle of a class that ended with one of the students saying to the other, I love you, but I hate the devil in you. Assuming, right, that if somebody is against you, they must be of the devil, right? Clearly, God's not at work in their life. So if it's naive not to have enemies, it's immature to think your enemies are God's enemies. And a sign that you're beginning to mature into the faith is when you can recognize that not everybody that dislikes you is against God. And not everybody that likes you is working with the cross, Right? That your enemies and God's enemies aren't perfectly matching on the Venn diagram. They don't perfectly overlap. And, and then another step of maturation is when you weep for those people and not just because of them. Right? I think so many of us, perhaps, we know what it's like to have enemies. We don't yet know what it's like to care more about God's enemies than we care about our own. And to care about God's enemies in ways that are true to who God is. I mean, one of the things that's striking about what Paul is saying to the Philippians here is, there are enemies of Christ. I tell you this often, and I tell it to you in tears. But then notice what he tells them to do. 
about these enemies. He turns their attention away from the enemies altogether back to Jesus. Right? So he names the enemies. He talks about the ways in which he's weeping over the enemies and because of them. And then he immediately turns their attention back. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, their glory is in their shame, their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. We see what's coming for them, but we have to live a different kind of life. Our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, when when our Lord appears, he will transform our humiliation into glory. He will transform our state into his state by the power that enables him to make all things subject to himself. Now, hear what Paul is saying. We're awaiting this moment in which Christ is going to appear and he's going to transform our humiliation, a humiliation that often comes at the hands of those enemies of the cross. He's going to take our humiliation and make it glory by the power through which he's able to make all things conform to himself. But if he has that power, why let his enemies stand at all? This is part of the wisdom of the cross. That God allows enemies to stand that he could overcome. God allows his enemies to defeat him even though he could defeat them. This is what Paul is teaching the Philippians. God has all power. He can transform us from humiliation to glory. And he will do it, but not now. And that means he will allow these enemies to stand. And therefore, we have to stand. We have to resist their resistance of God. Knowing that God has all power to make things right, but he will do it in his time. And until then, we stand. And that's what he says. So stand in the Lord. Stand in the Lord in this way. And if you are... Confident that God is the God who in the end of all things will make things right. You can stand no matter what is breaking in the world. No matter what is going wrong. And this this is what Paul encourages the Philippians to do. Bear with evil in the world. Stomach it. Know that God is bringing judgment to it. Their end is destruction, he says. But that end isn't here yet. And the way in which we're going to resist it best is by resisting it in ways that are true to the cross. If there are enemies of the cross, the only way to counter it is by the lives of people who are friends of the cross. And to be a friend of the cross is to be somebody who's willing to be humiliated just like Jesus was. Will God transform our humiliation? Absolutely. But not until we're called into it. Not until we're called into it. There is no, God is the God who raises the dead, but only the dead get raised. God is the God who transforms humiliation into glory, but only the humiliated are glorified. And there is no way to be the people of God in the world without being friends of the cross. And there there is no way to be friends of the cross without being people who are put on display and mocked and appear weak when they're strong appear like nothing when God is at work in them, and seem to be rejected even by God in the midst of the world. That's our destiny. And if we don't accept that wisdom, then we will respond to God's enemies in ways that are false to who God is. This is what we see with the disciples all the way through Jesus' life, right? We could 
talk about countless instances of it, but I'll give you two. One is the disciples hear about these people who are resisting Jesus, who are against what Jesus is doing, and they ask Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on them? Right? You, do you want us to kill them? I love that they just assume that they could. That's some serious confidence, right? I mean, imagine you're talking to Jesus and you're like, hey, Jesus, you know those people that, that are kind of mocking you? You want me to call down fire and kill them? Right? Not Jesus, would you do it? Right? You want me to do it? And Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of. You don't know what's driving you. You don't know what is really your agenda. And, and we're not going to be able to live our, responsibly, our responsibility well in the world until we realize that it's possible to see the enemies of God, but then to respond to them in ungodly ways. Just because you can see things that are evil doesn't mean your response isn't equally evil. Just because you're angered by injustice doesn't mean your response isn't unjust. Were these people mocking Jesus? Absolutely. Are there things that are happening in our culture right now that are evil? Absolutely. But be careful. You might not know what spirit is driving you. You have to respond to evil, but you can't respond to evil with evil. Right? You can't let what comes up out of you be of the same spirit as that which you're trying to resist. Right? The way Jesus will say this is you can't drive out the devil by the devil. But so many, I mean, this, this is what makes the culture wars the culture wars. People on various sides trying to drive out the devil by the devil. And we're supposed to be the people of a different wisdom. We're the friends of the cross. We're the people who recognize that God's ways are not our ways. And that the way to resist our enemy is by forgiving them and loving them and tolerating them and bearing with them. Turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. We, we have to learn to be people who know how to stand. And that means at least two things. If you're standing in the Lord, that means, one, you're standing with the people the Lord is standing with. Yes. And the, the Lord stands with those who are weak and rejected and persecuted and abandoned. So if you're really standing in the Lord, you will stand with the people who are most humiliated in the world, most broken in the world. So that one of the ways you can tell whether or not you're being faithful is, are you aligned with people of power or people of weakness? Are you aligned with people of privilege or people of, who are marginalized? This is a dead giveaway. Not, not do you have the rhetoric of being aligned with people who are weak, but are you genuinely living your life in ways that are given to the care of the widow and the orphan and the poor? Given to the care of those who are truly broken by the way things are in the world? Is that really the way my life is going? Is that really the way your life is going? Because that's where the Lord is. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. Right? Jesus is not interested in taking up space in the White House. He's interested in taking up space in a crack house. And if you have in mind that this is the way he's going to rule the world, you haven't read the gospel yet. Jesus doesn't come and select disciples who have access to Herod, more about him in a moment, and Pilate and Caiaphas. He selects fishermen and tax collectors and assassins. 
and says, let me show you how to live a life that is befriending the cross. So it's not to say that Christians can't be involved in politics. We should be. It's not to say that Christians can't have political opinions. You're welcome to them. But don't forget, you're called not to be true to this or that party or this or that agenda, but to be true to the wisdom of the cross, which will require you to live in ways that identify you with the humiliated because only the humiliated get glorified. Only the dead get raised. Have you made it? Are you okay so far? Okay. Stand with the Lord. Stand in the Lord. But to do that, you have to withstand. You won't really be able to stand with the weak unless you can withstand the strong. You've got to have the kind of character that can withstand resistance and persecution and mockery. One of the things that's striking about Jesus is how often when he's with the powerful, he doesn't say anything at all. We're going to talk about Herod in just a moment. When Jesus is standing before Herod right at the end of his life and Herod is mocking him and all of these accusers are standing around Jesus hurling accusations at him, Jesus doesn't say a single word. Doesn't dignify the moment with a response at all. Because it takes strength of character, the strength of the spirit in your life, the character of the fruit of the spirit, to withstand the pressures to conform to the way things are. And you'll never, I will never be able to be the kind of person who can stand with those that society casts out if I can't withstand the pressures of the culture to be successful and prestigious and important. Jesus dies outside the city with thieves. And that's why the, the writer of Hebrews says, so let us go to him outside the city and bear his shame with him. This is the call of the Christian life. Jesus is identified with the thieves who are killed outside the city. And we're called to go outside the city to leave the place of prestige and influence and privilege and go to where Jesus is outside the city where the thieves are where the humiliated are, and share his shame with him. That's who we're called to be. That's who we're called to be. And I'll never be able to live like that until I learn that his enemies require a life from me that should make me forget my own. His enemies require a kind of life from me, a life of patience and forgiveness and humility that makes me forget my own enemies. Some of us are struggling to deal with certain people in our lives. We're struggling with our own enemies. And God is saying, I'll deal with your enemies if you'll just turn your attention to mine. That's how you'll learn to love those people in your life. Go to Luke 13. This is... Just after Jesus has made it clear that he's going to Jerusalem to die. And he's promising that he's going to bring the kingdom. And right in that moment, verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Quick note, 
We often think of the Pharisees as Jesus' primary enemies, and in many ways they were, but they're also clearly friends of Jesus in other ways because multiple times in the story of Jesus, the Pharisees come to Jesus and warn him. They try to protect him. So it happens when Jesus is coming into the city. Remember the, the triumphal procession? The Pharisees come to Jesus and say, don't do this because Rome is going to interpret this as um, the, the beginning of a coup, the beginning of a rebellion. Don't, don't ride into the city in this way and let people shout Hosanna at you. They're trying to protect Jesus. And just like that, they're, and of course he ignored them, but here they're doing it again. They're trying to protect Jesus. So they say, get away from here for Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill you. Now Herod is the king. That has, he's really a puppet of the Roman Empire, but he's been established as the king of this region, the king of the Jews. And, of course, he has all kinds of power. Now, he's not as powerful as Pilate, but he is, he is powerful. And so they're warning Jesus about Herod. Now, we already know, of course, that Herod has tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born, right? because Herod gets news that there's a prophecy about a Messiah coming, and Herod has killed the firstborn uh, in an attempt to kill the young in an attempt to get rid of this Messiah. So now here's the word that Herod wants to kill him again. And Jesus' response is hilarious and biting. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Now, we've, we've portrayed Jesus as if Jesus is, forgive me, Mr. Rogers. I love Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Jesus wasn't Mr. Rogers, right? Jesus was incredibly gentle and kind to children and sex workers. Other than that, Everybody else was pretty roughly treated, right? So if you're here this morning and you're a child or a sex worker, Jesus will be gentle with you. Everybody else should be afraid. Almost without exception. I mean, it's almost without exception. When Jesus talks to anybody else, he insults them, rebukes them, or says something that's just completely uninterpreted. And here, he gets word that Herod's trying to kill him, and his response is unbelievably disdainful. Go and tell that fox for me that I have work to do. Now, if you're not careful, you'll read that reference, go and tell that fox for me, as him saying, it's an insult, clearly, but that as him saying Herod is a, is a crafty person. But that's not what's going on here. In Hebrew tradition, and you see this all the way through the rabbis, Foxes are compared with lions. So, for instance, when young rabbis are approached, in the, when they're in the presence of greater rabbis and they are approached by someone with a question, the standard response is, why would you ask me a fox when there are lions in the room? What's being said here is an insult to Herod, not just that he's crafty, but that he's not a lion. What Jesus is saying is, go and tell that weak one, he can't do anything to stop what I'm doing. He wants to kill me? 
right. It's unbelievably disdainful. He has no regard at all for Herod's power or position. He simply says, he's not a lion, and I have work to do. And I can't even be bothered to respond to him myself. Go and tell Herod for me. I have work to do. Now, one of the things that I think is important for us to realize is that there's something wrong, and this is going to be really controversial, so you've known me for more than 10 years, so just give me a little bit of grace here. But one of the signs that our commitment to Jesus is compromised is when we're afraid to speak like that about people in power. If you're more worried about being respectful to people in power than you are about grieving for those who are abused, then the Spirit of God is not in you. Jesus does not respect Herod. Jesus does not respect Herod. There's no part of Jesus. When Jesus is in front of Herod and Herod is mocking him and judging him, Jesus doesn't dignify him with a response. There's no part of Jesus that is in some way deferring to Herod. There are times to be respectful to authority, absolutely. But you have to discern the difference between authority that is caring for those who are weak and authority that's taking advantage of those who are weak. When there's an authority that's caring for those who are weak, absolutely they should be respected. Absolutely they should be honored. When there's an authority that's abusing people who are weak, you need to call them the foxes they are. And this is true from the local level all the way up to the international level. And if your concern is honoring those people, then you can't honor the cross because the cross exposes that lie. The cross exposes all of that power and makes it meaningless. I mean, this is why Jesus immediately goes on to say, this might might happen to me this morning, that Jesus immediately goes on to say, (laughs) Jerusalem is the city where the prophets are killed. You know why the prophets get killed? Because the prophets refuse to show honor to dishonorable authorities. And they refuse to allow the abused to be abused without standing with them. And that's why they get killed. Because when you have dishonorable authorities who are called for being dishonorable, guess what dishonorable authorities do with their power? They kill the people who challenge them. This is the way you can tell the difference between an honorable authority and a dishonorable one. When they're challenged, do they repent or not? David, you are the man. And what does David do? He doesn't kill Nathan the prophet. He repents. Because the sign of a truly honorable authority is when they recognize that what they're doing is destructive, they change. But dishonorable authorities impose their will with power. And we are the people who have to call that lie for what it is because we're friends of the cross. And we're people who believe in a God whose power is nothing like the power of this world. And so Jesus says, tell Herod that fox, I'm busy. I'm headed to Jerusalem where the prophets end up being killed. And then Jesus says this, and I'm almost done. Hopefully Tulsa is not a place like Jerusalem. I don't want to be, not that I'm a prophet, but I don't want to be killed. Jesus says, Jerusalem to Jerusalem, how often 
like a mother hen, I would have gathered you, but you would not. I think this is such a powerful juxtaposition. He's just referred to Herod as a fox, and now he identifies himself as a hen. And this is the wisdom of the cross over against the wisdom of the world. How does Jesus protect us from the fox? Not by killing the fox, but by letting the fox kill him. Jesus could, he says to Pilate, I could call legions of angels. But that's not the way the wisdom of the cross works. The only way the enemies of God are defeated is by the ways in which God lets his enemies defeat him and then exposes the foolishness of that victory. How does God defeat his enemies? The great enemy of God is death. How does God defeat death? By dying. How does God defeat Pilate and Herod? Not with a sword. Not by rallying his troops. Not by calling angels. He defeats Pilate and Herod by letting Pilate and Herod do whatever they want to do. One of the things that's striking to me, I was talking with a friend this week about this text and and he pointed out something I absolutely love. When Pilate, when Herod is judging Jesus, He's, he, he, he is excited that Jesus is coming to him because he wants Jesus to perform a trick, a miracle. And Jesus won't do it, won't even speak to him. And so he starts mocking Jesus. And then he puts this garment on Jesus, this rich robe on him, to mock him as a supposed king and then sends him back to Pilate. And when Pilate judges Jesus famously, you remember how it ends. Pilate doesn't want to judge Jesus, but the crowd keeps insisting. And Pilate can't withstand the pressure. And so he gives in and he judges Jesus. And then he washes his hands. But Jesus is a judge too. But he's a judge who doesn't push away or step back. He goes all the way with the condemned. This is what makes Jesus Jesus. Is that he defeats Pilate and Herod and all the gods of this world. Not with a sword. Because if he had gotten that kind of victory, then he would have been overthrown himself. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. But those who die by the sword in Christ are raised to life. This is what Paul is telling the Philippians. There are enemies of the cross all around you and this should make you weep because this is bringing destruction and harm and confusion to all of the people around you, especially children and widows and, and, and the weakest around us. This should make you weep, but remember Our God is the God who raises the dead. So even if the fox kills the hen, the story's not over. The story's not over because God raises the dead. So here's the way in which we as Christians have to live in this world. A world in which you have abortion and incredible terrorist violence. You have corruption at all kinds of levels. In a world like that, how do we live? We have to live not as lions or foxes, but as hens. Hens that gather as many people as possible under our wings 
Hens that are always looking together, even our own enemies under our wings. Knowing that the fox or the lion might kill us. But so what? Our God is a God who raises the dead. And here's the thing he does. Because he's willing to instill his character in us, we can live as the hen that's not afraid of the fox. And when the fox kills us and then we are raised to life, it actually changes our nature and the fox's. You know what Isaiah says about the kingdom of God? The wolf will lie down with the lamb. That's what we're expecting, is a God who can work in the world in such a way that he can make peace where there is no way to make peace. He can make the wolf lie down with the lamb. He can make the fox and the hen play together. All we have to do is keep on being hens. Keep on being hens. Henpeck the enemies of God with the hope of a God who raises the dead. And whatever happens to us, never respond to evil with evil. Because we trust that God will make all things right. Amen? All right, I'm done.